Well, good morning, everyone. So fun, such a joy to be in the house of the Lord, to be in his presence. And this is a great time of year as we think about the harvest coming in and celebrating his goodness. Look forward to celebrating with the church and the school on Friday. I hope you come and join us. It's going to be a great evening. You know, I was thinking this morning, I got to hear the, the joyful sounds of children squirming and making noise. And I thought, isn't it great that we have kids coming back into the congregation? So let's be sure that we enfold them well and welcome the families and support them. So fun to see them be part of what we're doing. This might be a good time to check your cell phones to make sure that they're turned off. We are live streaming, and so we don't want any disruptions with phone calls going out. Well, it's not always what we like to hear, but the Christian life is one of obedience from beginning to end. It begins by obeying that first command, follow me. And it continues as we obey that command by walking in his footsteps and following on the path that he leads until the last breath that he grants us. It's a constant reminder that our lives do not belong to ourselves, but they belong to the one who purchased them with his precious blood because of his perfect life and sacrifice. It's a constant reminder that he is the Lord and we are not. That's a key fact to the Christian life. In a movie that came out a number of years ago that was a Christian-based movie called The Harvest, author Glenda Davis wrote a poem that talks about the importance of obedience and its rightness. And she says this, It is not always easy to smile and be nice when we are called to sacrifice. It is not always easy to put others first, especially when tired and feeling our worst. It is not always easy to do the Father's will. It wasn't so easy to climb Calvary's hill. But we are his children. We should learn to obey, not seeking our own, but seeking his way. It's not always easy to fight the good fight, but it is always good, and it is always right. In the time that we have spent going through the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus has been showing us who he is through his words and his works. As he's come to fulfill the plan of God, he is calling and even commanding people to join him and declaring the goodness of God and in his glory to all who would have ears to hear. And as he commands people to follow him, his expectation is that they would. Then he trains and he equips them for the ministry that he has prepared for them, and he sends them out. And so these first disciples, these first apostles that we'll look at this morning, whom Jesus called and is getting ready to send out, they had to learn the truth that ultimately all of us have to learn, as quoted by Peter Forsyth, the first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. The one who has found Jesus to be the master of his soul is also the one who has found true freedom in a life worth living for the honor and glory of God. Well, as we've seen over the past several chapters, Jesus has been teaching and preaching and healing, and the crowds are growing as they see this one who has come, who is different than any teacher they've heard before. And as Jesus looks out and sees the crowds wherever he goes, as we saw last week, he has compassion on them, and so he commands his followers, pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. 
And we saw last week, as we looked at the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke, that he himself prayed for workers. And God answered his prayer, and the response was 12 men that he would choose to be his representatives as these first apostles, these first sent ones who would go on to the harvest fields and proclaim the kingdom of God. These 12 apostles who, according to the writings of the Apostle Paul, formed the foundation of the church built on Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And they go out into their first journey in the passage that we're going to look at this morning as we consider the verses of Matthew 10, verses 5 to 15. So in honor of God, who is addressing us this morning, and as we've just prayed, speak, O Lord, I invite you to stand as we read the passage that we will study this morning from Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 15. And the true and holy word of God says, These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics, or sandals, or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you, or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let us pray. Father, we're mindful this morning of how needy we are and how good you are and how weak we are. So we lean onto your strength now guide us, to teach us, to lead us, because this is your word, and we are your people, and we sit at your feet as you guide us by your spirit. Help us to see in a greater measure the greatness of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we pray in his wonderful name. Amen. Please be seated. You can follow the sermon along in the sermon outline that is in your bulletin, or you can follow along in the church app. And I hope that more and more of us will take advantage of all that is available on the church app as we communicate what is happening here at the church. For those of you joining online this morning, good morning. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for taking the time to fellowship with us. We're glad that you can join us, and we look forward to studying Matthew 10 with you, wherever you might be, as you join us here at the throne of grace. The first major point we will look at this morning is the command, go to Israel. The command go to Israel. As we saw in the previous section, Jesus saw the needs of the masses but did something about it. He spent the night praying to the Father. We know that he always sought the Father. He walked in harmony with the Father. There was nothing he ever did that was outside of the clear direction and guidance of the Father and of God the Holy Spirit. And then he chose 12 men to be his disciples, to be the apostles so that there would be more workers in the harvest fields of the Lord. So he has chosen them, and now he's getting ready to send them out on their first missionary journey. 
And that is where our text begins today, for he sends them to Israel first, but not Israel only. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no towns of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He sends them out on their first mission. He does with a clear set of instructions. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now geography here helps us. Because they are in the region of Galilee, and Galilee was surrounded on three sides by Gentile peoples, and on the fourth side by the Samaritans. So for this initial missionary journey, it was convenient that they would stay where they are and focus on the Jews that were living in that region. This first apostolic mission was indeed intended to go to the Jewish people. That is where it would begin. You recall last week as we looked at the meaning of the word apostles, it means sent ones. These sent ones go out and proclaim the message and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's clear here, at least initially, go nowhere. This is a command from the Lord. He's giving specific instructions for this specific mission. Go to the lost sheep of Israel, not to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. What's interesting is, is that in the whole entirety of the 28 chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, this is the only time he uses the term Samaritan. Eventually, the ministry and the mission that Jesus will give his apostles will be expanded. It will include all Gentiles, indeed, that we will be called to be a light to the nations, making disciples of all nations. But the order and the history of redemption is clear. The promises had been first given to the Jewish people. So the announcement of their fulfillment would, of course, need to go to the Jewish people as well. So the apostles are getting prepared for what would be eventually a ministry to the Gentiles, or at least expanding beyond the borders of Israel. The Gentiles would also have more time, perhaps, to be prepared about who is this Messiah, because after all, they would, most of them would not have had a clear Old Testament background like the Jewish people would be. And so what we see here in this passage this morning is what the Apostle Paul would refer to later as he's talking to the church in Rome, that this had to happen this way because it had to go to the Jew first. And then also to the Greek. And the early church practiced this. As the church went out, it understood the Great Commission. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the outermost ends of the earth. It's what Paul did often as he went to cities. He sought out where the Jews were first and preached the gospel to them. And it was only after they refused that he would go and take the message to the Gentiles. And so Jesus is preparing them. Look, this is the fulfillment of what needs to take place in the plan of God for the salvation of the world. And yet there are hints, even within Matthew itself, that this door will be broader and wider and greater to include the Gentiles. Think of some of the signs we've seen already in the gospel according to Matthew. It was the Gentile magi who came and worshipped the Christ child. Jesus began his public ministry, among other places in Matthew 4, in Galilee of the Gentiles. It was a Roman centurion, a Gentile, who came to Jesus and said, heal my servant. There were people who believed in Jesus in the region of the Decapolis, which is this league of ten cities that was on the eastern side, so across the Jordan River from the land of Israel. The men that were demon-possessed in Gadara, who were Gentiles, became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is hope for the Gentiles. The mission to the Gentiles will come, but it does not replace the mission to the Jews. It adds to it. It augments it. It broadens it. 
After all, Jesus is the son of Abraham, and as the ultimate son of Abraham, all who embrace him, Jesus as Lord and Savior, become the true children of Abraham. But Paul reminds us, even those Gentiles who believe are as wild branches grafted into the true tree of God built on the patriarchs. Yet in this first mission that Jesus sends them out, he gives specific instructions. Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This would have been a, a, an expression full of meaning for the first readers because it would have been taken to understand all of Israel, or at least all of the Jews within a particular area, such as we find in Galilee, surrounded as it was by Gentiles and Samaritans. It doesn't mean that all of them will, will eventually be saved. It does mean that they need to have it announced to them first in the chronology of events. And those, of course, that are the true sheep of Christ, they will come. Jesus says, my sheep know me. They hear my voice and they come. I know them by name. But then he also promised, but I have sheep in another fold. And so those are the Gentiles. And so Jesus is letting us know what is to come as he's preparing these apostles and sending them out. We looked last week at the, the, the symbolism between sheep and shepherd. And we looked at a number of different expressions in the Old Testament or examples where there were bad shepherds leading the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we made reference to Ezekiel 34 where God himself said, I will come and be a shepherd to my people. I will come and gather them and I will guide them. And that Jesus was the fulfillment as he said, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So go, Jesus said, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was specific instructions given to a specific group of men for a specific ministry to accomplish a specific purpose. And he did, they did. And we rejoice in that. And so how do we look at that for us today? It, it, it's not a direct parallel because these initial instructions were not given to us initially. But I think what it might mean for us is to follow that example that we see in the Great Commission, where you go to S Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and then to the outermost ends of the earth. We start with those we know. We start with those we love. We start with those that are in close proximity to us. Our families, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. Are they aware that we know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do they know that he came to be the sin bearer, to forgive people of their sins, to bring us back into a relationship with God? Have we dared to share it with them as we've opened our mouth to tell them who God is and what he has done? Yes, we need to go because all of us have people with whom we can interact with who do not yet know Christ. And we can start there. But after Jesus gives this instruction to the first apostles, Israel first, but not Israel only, he then commands to proclaim the kingdom freely. Our text says, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he gave them a command, and now he will give them a series of instructions about what they are to do as they go out. And we notice that the first word is a command, proclaim. Jesus has been in a ministry of teaching and preaching and yes, performing of miracles and performing of works of compassion. But he had a proclamational ministry. The things of God need to be proclaimed. They need to be verbally communicated to others. Because Christianity is a call of a clear response to a clearly preached word of a call to faith and repentance. Faith comes by hearing, not by observing. 
And so as these first apostles go out on their first journey, they are to proclaim what it is they have seen and heard. And we're able to do the same. We have that same apostolic faith today that has been passed down through us. We have the complete revelation of God for all that we need for faith and godliness. And so we can be a people who proclaim. And what are they to proclaim? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Exactly what John the Baptist did at the beginning of his ministry. It's exactly what Jesus said at the beginning of his public ministry. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. The Messiah has come. Therefore, there's a call that goes out. Repent of your sins. Turn away from your old way of living and your old wickedness. And this repentance is required of all. Because all of us have turned away from the Lord. All of us have turned to our own ways. All of us are, as Isaiah said, like sheep who have gone astray. And all of us need to hear that word to repent and turn that we might enter the kingdom of heaven by faith. And as the kingdom of heaven advances in our own hearts and in our own lives and as God rules over us, the impact that he wants to have through us will continue to grow. And ultimately one day we know Jesus will be declared King of kings and Lord of lords and all will bow before him as he receives all of the nations as his inheritance and rules over all of a renewed creation as Lord and King. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he goes on and says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. There's a spiritual clash that is going on here. There are the kingdoms of men, lost as they are, and political machinations, and power, and struggle, and flesh, and sin. But as the kingdom of heaven is introduced, and as it penetrates among the kingdoms of men, there is a show of power as these kingdoms clash. And part of the sign that the kingdom of heaven is conquering is the effects of the kingdom of men and sin is overcome. There's healing. There's raising from the dead. There's casting out of evil spirits. There's healing of those that are sick. To quote Pastor David Platt, Jesus sends out his apostles to minister to the diseased, the dying, the despised, and the dirty. Kingdom of heaven, as it moves and enters among the kingdoms of men, it is overcoming the darkness. And as the light spreads, the impact of that light spreads. And notice that what Jesus sends these apostles out to do is exactly what he has been doing in chapters 8 and 9, showing us what the kingdom of heaven looks like as it penetrates, as it is introduced, as it overcomes the kingdoms of men and their darkness. He now sends his followers out to do the same in his power, in his name, and for his glory. And I think this reminds us then that the Christian life is to be an active one. Because there are commands that we have from the Lord about how we are to live out, how we are to speak out, how we are to interact, how we are to decide as we're challenged to love God with heart, soul, mind, or strength. The Christian life cannot be a passive one. It cannot be a quiet one. It cannot be a keep-to-yourself kind of one. Because Jesus has given us this message that will transform the world. And so as they go out, they're announcing there is a king and there is a kingdom. And the focus is on that king. And they're causing men and women to draw their attention to point to this king as Jesus did. Who said, follow me. And his disciples go out, his apostles go out and say, yes, here is the one that we are to follow. We know that the apostles did perform many miracles. We don't have any specific examples in the Gospels that I see where they raise the dead, but we do see examples in the book of Acts. 
as the Holy Spirit came upon the church after Jesus ascended back to heaven, apostles went out, and as the kingdom of heaven was in clashing with these kingdoms of men and overcoming, it was showing it was overcoming by these signs of great power and miracles. Proclaim, and as a result of the proclamation, there'll be performance of actions, and then the text goes on, you receive without paying, give without pay. Gospel ministry is done for the glory of God. The gospel is not for sale. The apostles were to serve at the Savior's pleasure, at his bidding, at his lordship, not for personal fame or power or wealth or possession or reputation or whatever else they might want to do. You might remember the story of the prophet Elisha was used of God to actually perform a great miracles. And yet, when he did, a man came to him and said, I'm sick. He said, go to the river, plunge yourself seven times in the river, you'll be healed. Those that came said, hey, we want to give you a reward. He said, I don't want your reward. I'm just doing what God commanded me to do. But his servant says, hey, I want to get me some of that. So he goes and says, I want some of the rewards. And God says, that's not why I'm performing these miracles. You receive without paying, give without pay. Now, Jesus does speak about money often in his ministry. He's actually going to bring the issue up in just a few verses. But the main reason to be in ministry is never to be for financial gain, but for God's eternal glory. The gospel calls us not to a life of prosperity nor poverty, but to heartfelt sufficiency in the goodness and graciousness of God. If we have Christ, we are rich indeed. We are blessed with eternal treasures that can never perish, spoil, or fade. No, the message of the kingdom of heaven is not for sale, but my friends, it does come at a cost. It came at the great cost of what God paid through his son as he sent him to this earth and lived out the perfect righteousness for 30 plus years, died a perfect death, and suffered at the hands of men. It was at a great cost. But secondly, it comes as a cost to those who receive the kingdom of heaven because it costs our lives to gain it. But as we give up our life for the kingdom of heaven, we truly gain life in the Lord Jesus Christ. You receive the gospel freely, he says. Freely offer it to others. It was common in those days. This is what he's contrasting. It was common in those days for traveling philosophers, traveling teachers to expect perks from their job. Jesus says, no, we're not going out. We serve others without the expectation of material rewards. You have received the gospel freely. You did not earn it. You did not merit it. You added nothing to it. Moreover, you didn't deserve it. And you certainly can't buy it. It's by grace alone. Offer that same gift to others free of charge. Next week, we're going to take a Sunday to take a look at the Reformation and affirm what is the gospel and the challenges that we face even today against the gospel, the temptations we have to always want to add something to the gospel so that we can claim a part of the credit for being in the kingdom of heaven. And the gospel strips us of all of our Righteousness strips us of all of our worth. We say, no, it is by grace and grace alone and the glories of Christ alone for the honor of God alone. And we'll talk about that next week. But first, we've seen the command this morning. Secondly, we see the conditions. Buy nothing. I found this interesting story in a, in a, a copy of the Reader's Digest going back a few decades. A man 
uh, tells a story about problems he had getting through to his son. He would ask his son to clean his room, and the son would always agree to do it, but never follow through. And after high school, the young man joined the Marine Corps. And when he came home for leave after basic training, his father said, Well, son, what have you learned? He said, Dad, I learned what now means. <laughs> when the commanding officer gives an order, we are all commanded to obey. Well, we have someone here that's greater than a commanding officer. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as he has given this command to the apostles, he expects them to get going quickly. And so he says, Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for the journey, or two tunics or sandals or a, craw, a staff. It was common in those days for a traveler to have a special pouch in which he would put his coins as he traveled. And we see Jesus listing in descending order the value of these coins from gold to silver to copper. But the emphasis here is on the word acquire. It means something like don't Go and collect large bills and fill your money purse. Don't take the large bills. Don't take the quarters. Don't take even the pennies. Don't go to the bank to make a withdrawal. It is not your money that will sustain you on this trip. It is the hand of the Lord. And so in this specific ministry that Jesus is giving, he's giving a specific set of instructions. He's saying this will be a short trip. So do not acquire or get, which is what the word means. Get or purchase the supplies that you will need. The bag that is referred to here was the common traveler bag that they would use to bring whatever supplies they need, especially food. He's saying, don't acquire anything. Go just the way you are with what you have. Get up quickly and go. You're to move quickly from village to village throughout Galilee and receive what you need along the way. But Jesus knows that the apostles will not live as beggars. They will learn that God provides for his people as his work is done in his way and his methods. For we'll look at what it means where it says the laborer deserves his wages. We'll get to that in just a moment. But now we see that the Lord, the good teacher that he is, is giving his apostles the opportunity to put into practice what he has already taught them in Matthew 6. Do not worry about what you eat or drink, about what you wear, for your father already knows you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added unto you. The Lord knows what he's going to do. He knows the lesson he's going to teach these men. He even knows how they'll be provided for. They're to move quickly from this, on this short, uh, quickly from village to village on this short trip. And as they do, they will see that God will provide for you. For the laborer deserves his food. Hospitality was an important part of life in ancient Israel. It was an important thing where they had to practice hospitality because there weren't an abundance of inns or motels, and the ones that were there were often dens of iniquity. And so we see the commands in the law where as travelers are coming through, provide for them, take care of them, with the expectation then that when you travel through other lands within Israel, people will take care of you as well. And so this was the expected thing that would happen for these sojourners, if you will, these travelers, as they would move through the area. And so for this mission, Jesus is saying, don't accumulate things. Don't prepare your own supplies. He wants to teach them about his providence. He wants to teach them about God's ability to take care of his children in every situation. So go out in faith. Take the Lord at his word. Do what he 
says to do because he has promised to do what he said he will do. Don't take extra coins or a bag of clothes or your supplies with you. Get up and go. There's an urgency here. And as you do, you will see that the laborer deserves his food, which we may say in other places as wages. Don't load yourself down with what you think you will need on a trip. But take the bare essentials and get going. The resources for personal ministry are not in personal provision, but in the divine power of God to take care of his people. That's what it means to live by faith. Live by faith does not mean let go and let God, as if somehow we relieve ourselves of responsibilities. Living by faith means trust God and get going. There's an active obedience to what God has called us to do. And he will provide as we obey, as we go out. You know, in the economy of God, this is the way he's designed it. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, New Covenant has always been his way that those that he sets apart for his service are to be provided for by the people of God. And those then that receive the benefits of the, the, the gospel, of the word, of the service of those servants are also to freely provide for their needs. So you had a whole system of sacrifices and tithes in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have generous Christian giving. We see that in several verses. For example, the parallel passage in Luke chapter 10. Jesus says, And remain in the house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Trust the Lord to provide what you'll need in the circumstances where you are. The Apostle Paul, who had lived out by this method, while at times working with his own hands, other times being provided for by the churches, as he is instructing Timothy in how to build the church, how to develop the church, in the letter he writes in 1 Timothy says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. You notice that Paul was familiar with the teachings of Jesus and communicates them even in one of his early letters as he writes to the church, as he writes to Timothy. He makes it very clear when he writes to the church in Corinth. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher, thresher in hope of sharing in the crop. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Jesus is applying this principle here in this first missionary journey as he sends out these apostles and says, you will be provided for. And so we see how Jesus, as a part of his discipleship program, is using every opportunity to teach these men well and the things of the gospel as he prepares to send them out and he will do it again. And eventually at the end of the gospel, it's, to the world we go, and those principles will be carried out as the church goes forward. So after seeing now the conditions, we now see the conduct of these men. Conduct, message of peace. If you're involved in any interaction of ministry at all, if you're involved in life at all, and you interact with people, you know that the complexities of dealing with people and the many different situations you encounter require wisdom. That's why we need to learn from others. We need to be taught because no one person can possibly learn everything on his own. 
Jesus knows that these men are going to need some practical instruction. He's already had a time of, of ministry. He wants to train them. So he's going to teach them how to conduct themselves as they go out. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he started to give some wisdom. Here's how you deal with people, especially those that oppose you. He, now he's going to give them an opportunity to put that into practice. So in this conduct, he says, peace, take it or lose it. And the text goes on. And whatever town or village you enter, find one who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. He sent them out on the mission. He says, when you enter the village, this is what you are to do. Get to know the people. Interact with them. Seek opportunities to preach the gospel. Opportunities to serve. Seek those who will take you in and provide for you. It seems to be in the context to find those who are worthy would be those uh, who come to embrace the message. They recognize its value. They recognize the, the importance of the one who had been sent. But to find out who that is would require inquiry, would require effort. It would take some scrutiny and wisdom. Once you make contact in a village, Jesus says, stay there. Do not move around. Stay in one place until you're done proclaiming the kingdom in that village. Finish the work in that village. Uh, Carol and I had the privilege of experiencing this personally as we raised support for 29 years when we were in cross-cultural ministry, and we would go to different cities where we were, had supporting churches, and there were always some homes that we really looked forward to staying in, and others not so much. But all we could do is say, this is how the Lord is providing for us, and we will stay in that town where God provides until we're done with the work in that town. That's what he's saying here. Don't look for a better gig. Once you get a foothold, don't look for the next thing. Stay there. Do what you're called to do. And begin each ministry encounter by giving. Give everyone a greeting. Give them a message. Give your blessing of peace. I wonder if the first hearers, as they heard this passage, wouldn't have in mind passages like Isaiah 52, 7, which says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation. He says, Design your God reigns. They're called to go out and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, just like Isaiah said they should. They're publishing peace, just like Isaiah said they should. We have the same message today, do we not? We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We've been brought into a position of peace before, before God because of Jesus Christ. We can go out and announce that peace to those that are around us. We can have those beautiful feet that bring good news to those that are languishing in the darkness of their sin. The message continues to be the same. And those who receive this message, those who receive these apostles and believe, they keep the peace that has been brought to them. They enter into peace with God, knowing that they are no longer under the wrath of God. But this comes with a warning as well. Rejection and repudiation. Rejection and repudiation. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Let your peace remain upon them if they have received you and they have received the message and they also will be beneficiaries of the peace of God. Jesus will say later 
in the Gospel of Matthew. If they reject you, they have rejected me who sent them. And if they rejected me, they have rejected my Father. The Gospel message that we have is not our Gospel message. It is His. And we go out and offer it and we preach it and proclaim it. Ultimately, the rejection is not of us. It is of the Jesus who sent us out. So if they receive you well and good, Jesus is saying. But if they do not, shake the dust off of your feet. Don't let any remnant of the town remain upon you. This is a form of repudiation. It's an application of Jesus saying, don't continue to cast your pearls before the swine. This was a common practice that the Jewish people would have. You see, they would have to pass through Gentile areas to get from Judea to Galilee or from Galilee back to Judea. And it was their habit then as they passed through either the Gentile or Samaritan lands, as soon as they entered back into Jewish land, they would brush the dust off their feet. They didn't want to bring the uncleanness, as it were, of the people among whom they had just walked. They didn't want to bring it into their own territory. That's the idea that's here. There's an idea of judgment, of disassociation, of separation. The gospel message does separate. If they do not receive your message, Jesus will remind us later in Matthew, they, result, result, they reject the ultimate message, who is Jesus. And so the, the conduct is one of peace. We are to be men and women of peace. We go off, out and offer the opportunity to be at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. But ultimately, if they reject, we leave them in the hands of God, and we go on to the next person. We go on to the next situation. Because there are consequences. Life. Or death. We should not be surprised today if people reject the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. After all, they did in his day. There were many who looked into the face of the Son of God and spit and put him on a cross. But we're still to go out and offer that message freely to all, freely as we have received it, because there is no other way. And so people need to hear. And they need to hear that if they reject the message, that rejection is destruction. To reject Jesus is to reject the truth and the only path that can lead to life. And so if you reject it, there's no other choice but the path to destruction. And because the gospel brings separation, what does that mean at times then in our personal relationships? Does it mean at times we may need to break off associations because of the gospel's sake? Because to reject the gospel is serious business, even with eternal consequences. Now, you'll agree with me, this is a tough saying from the mouth of Jesus. But the challenge that went out to these first apostles, and I think will continue through the gospel of Matthew, and certainly we see it as a common theme throughout the New Testament, is we are called to boldly proclaim and stand firm even when others reject. And next week, the passage we will look at saying one of the expected responses we can get is persecution. And so we'll look at that next week that he's sending them out full of power in his authority, in his name. And what happens? They'll be persecuted. And so we get the idea that what Jesus is saying here is the time is urgent and the time is short. And those to whom we preach the gospel may not get another chance. And so we need to boldly warn them. Today, my friends, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do we have that urgency in our hearts? Do we know that we need to share the gospel? This gets very personal for me. 
For several years, I pleaded with my sister to come to faith in Christ. Time and again, she would say, I'm not ready. Showing she didn't understand the gospel. You'll never get yourself ready. You come to Christ to get cleaned up. You don't clean yourself up to come to Christ. And I'd say, Sherry, please repent. God wants to save you. He has a plan of salvation for you. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. April 30th, 1998, I get a phone call. My sister's been killed in a car accident. I don't know. I don't know. There's an urgency, my friends. We do not know a final hour. And those that we love, those that we know, they don't know their final hour either. And we have a message. And we need to share it. The Lord has promised in his word to shake the nations in judgment. In the light of that reality, it might mean that we need to shake the dust from our shoes so that those around us see that this is serious business. God plays for keeps. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who suffered and died for his faith in Christ during World War II, said, nothing could be more ruthless than to make men think there is still plenty of time to mend their ways. We don't know. But we do know that all are called to repent and believe, and that those that reject will suffer judgment. So repent and believe, my friends. I would that all within the sound of my voice would take seriously the reality that judgment is coming, but there is a good God who can save those who would come to him. Jesus concludes this passage with the idea of to whom much is given, and you know the end of it, to whom much is given. He says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Think of that. Those villages of the lost sheep of Israel who reject the Messiah will be in for a severe judgment. This should almost shock our sensibilities. Jesus is saying it will be better for the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah than for these cities on the day of judgment. First of all, let's affirm what Jesus said. There will be a day of judgment. People want to deny it today. They want to hide it behind a God of love who would never dare judge anyone. Such a God does not exist in the Bible. So there is a day of judgment. But secondly, imagine the images and implications that this should have provoked in the, the, the minds of the first hearers. The towns of Sodom and Gomorrah are the ultimate example of depravity and wickedness. They violated the norms of expected hospitality in the most grotesque ways possible. And then God judged them because of their wickedness against God and against his servants. Here in Matthew 10, he's saying there are villages who will not respect. They will violate the norms of hospitality, rejecting even the messenger himself. And so Jesus says, remind them how serious this is. If it was bad for ancient cities who rejected angelic messages, what will happen to those towns who reject the Son of God? The one about whom the angels sing and rejoice. So Jesus reminds us this morning, judgment is real. It happened in those wicked days of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to happen in the, the days after the life of Jesus when the city of Jerusalem itself will be destroyed because it rejected the Messiah. And we know that there will be judgment in the future. I've had a 
privilege of going to what is thought to be the site of Sodom and Gomorrah. On the north end of the Dead Sea in a place called Talahamam, they discovered cities. It fits the topography, it fits the geography, it fits the situation of Genesis 14 to Genesis 19. And they've discovered a layer of sand and dirt that has turned to glass because of sudden heat. God doesn't mess around with sin. If it was bad for those who rejected those first messengers, how much worse will it be for those who reject the Son of God? And so in our time this morning, as we've looked at this passage in Matthew 10, we have seen the command, we've seen the conditions, we've seen the conduct, we've seen the consequences. I have a serious question this morning. Do you believe in hell? Do you really believe in hell? Do you live your life as if you believe that hell is real and that people are on the precipice of eternal destruction if they don't repent and believe? Do you not feel the urgency of the message that we have? Jesus sent these 12 out on a training mission with a sense of urgency that they were to announce the gospel first to the Jews then to the Gentiles, with the call to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And if they reject, brush off the dust from your feet. There was an urgency. That urgency is still there. As we were reminded last week, every second that passes, two people die and pass into eternity. Just as those apostles were sent out and they were to live by faith, the Lord is calling us to do the same Jesus did not save us and call us so that we could live comfortable lives within our comfort zone. He called us to be his ambassadors, his spokesmen, his proclaimers, that, and that will require effort and sacrifice and determination, getting beyond just our demand for comfort and ease, but to actually give our lives in his service. And so we need to be men who are urgent about believing the gospel, for the hour is at hand. And one does not know his final hour. In the passage we've looked at this morning, Jesus has told these 12 apostles where they are to go, what they are to take, what they are to do, how they are to react, and what the consequences are. And he continues to do that throughout the Gospel of Matthew. We see it throughout the New Testament, and he does the same with his people today. We have the message. We have the methods. We have the command. And so we need to be actively involved in sharing with those around us. And as I reminded you, next week we'll see that sometimes it's not so easy to follow the Lord. Persecution will come. And that's not past tense. The church today in the world is a persecuted church. And we'll, we'll learn about that and how we can pray for them. And perhaps how we can get ready for the persecution that may yet come to our own land. But until then, what can we learn from the lesson that we've looked at today? Just a few points. Because he is in control of the harvest, we will obey his instructions as we go where he sends us to proclaim his message. It is his gospel. It is his message. We are his servants. It is his cause. It's all for his glory. There should, no, there should be no me or I in anything that we do in the gospel message. Secondly, because the Father will provide for our needs, we will live by faith in his goodness and strength. Your Father loves you. And he will take care of you. Live as if it's true because it is true. And live by faith 
to conquer the fears that are ever-present and that tempt us. Thirdly, because blessed are the peacemakers, we will bring God's message of peace wherever we go. We are to be those who bring peace, who practice peace, who pronounce peace, who proclaim peace, who offer peace. As Jesus said, when you go, bring the peace of God with you. And lastly, because the day of judgment is coming, we will warn others and plead with them to repent and believe. The Lord gives hard messages because the truth requires hard messages. But here's, here's the good news. He is with us and he will empower us and he will see that his plan gets accomplished and will be lavish in the blessings that he passes out along the way. So let's take him at his word and let's go. Let's pray. Father, we know that it was so good for Jesus to come. And we know how needy we are of such a Jesus, and we're thankful that we can confess him as Savior and Lord. But Father, we're also reminded and we plead with your mercy because there are times we have not lived like he is our Savior and Lord. We've taken burdens on ourselves that we should not have. We've made decisions that were contrary to your word. We've acted in ways that did not promote the peace with which you send us out. We're broken and we pretend that we are not. So we turn to you this morning and we say thank you for such a lavish grace. Thank you for such a beautiful message. Thank you for the truth that stirred our souls and drew us into your kingdom. And now would you continue to stir our souls to go out and represent you and to proclaim that kingdom to yet still others. And then would you be glorified along the way? Would you give us the joy of your Holy Spirit as our power source? And will you be a fragrant offering of Christ to all that we engage with? To you be the glory, Father, as we commit ourselves to you anew and afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've heard the, the word of God uh, proclaimed to us and we've heard the gospel preached, that call to repentance, and we, we 